Well, we are in uh, Revelation chapter 11. Uh, we're in the middle of the trumpets. We're in the, in the midst of the trumpets. We finished the sixth trumpet. And then there's an interlude, a two-part interlude between the sixth and the seventh trumpets, both of which sort of, sort of lead us to the seventh trumpet. Last week, we talked about the first half of the interlude, the first part, and uh, that is the angel and the little scroll, if you remember that. And then we are supposed to do the second part today, but as I finished up the preparation for the sermon yesterday, the second part just seemed too long and involved to squeeze into one sermon. So I've decided to split it into two. So we're going to do the first half today and the second half next week and postpone the others. I'll find some way to make it up eventually, maybe in December. Or even put it off, off to the last sermon into the new year. By the way, um, as I prepare these sermons, I find myself often hoping that the congregation is praying for me. Um, these are very challenging and, um, and I feel very much the, Lord, the need for the Lord's help and hope that you are crying out to the Lord on my behalf. I want to remind you of the great uh, Puritan saying that bad preaching is God's judgment on a prayerless congregation. Revelation 11. I'm going to read the whole thing, 1 through 13, but I'm only going to preach on the first half, 1 through 6. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out. For it is given over to the nations. And they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses. And they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. That's the part we're going to focus on this morning. But I'm going to read now the second part just so you know where this is leading that I'll preach on next week. And when they have finished their testimony, that is, the, these two witnesses, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them 
and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some of the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents. Because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on them who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. So let's walk our way through this passage and see what we can come up with. First of all, the first two verses. John is given a measuring rod, like a staff, and he's told to get up and to measure the temple and the altar and those who worship there, but not to measure the court outside the temple, but to leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. Well, before we begin trying to figure out the details here, let me just say something about interpreting the book of Revelation. Mostly, Revelation resembles a patchwork quilt of Bible parables, stories, and passages. And each one of those pieces of cloth that gets selected to be part of this patchwork quilt from the Old Testament or sometimes even from parts of the New Testament, each one is selected for a reason. And sometimes a patch is actually made of two different pieces of cloth. Two different stories that have been brought together to become a part of this patchwork quilt or even three at times. Okay, so in, with that in mind, let's think about the different images here in this passage. The first two verses. First, measuring the temple. Now when we read about the temple, we should know that every time the temple is mentioned in the book of Revelation, it's referring not to the literal building, but to God's spiritual temple made up of living stones which he refers to or which the New Testament refers to in 1 Peter 2. So that's what the temple is here. It's God's people. So then what is this measuring of the temple? Well, 
there are two other places that are very similar to this in Ezekiel 40 to 48 and in Revelation 21 15 to 17 we have a very similar phenomenon of measuring the temple area and various parts of the temple complex and it's pretty clear that the point of this is that the security and the protection of the temple are being well attended to. And so the measuring of the temple seems to represent the securing, the caring for, the protecting of the temple. Similar to how Jesus tended the seven lampstands in Revelation 1 through 3. And also how God's people were sealed and protected in Revelation chapter 7, 3 through 8. Now this may sound strange to our ears that the measuring of the temple is actually representative of securing and protecting the temple, but you can actually see that right here in these verses. John is told to measure the temple and the altar and the worshipers, but he's told not to measure the court outside the temple. Why not measure the temple area? Because that part, or why not measure that part of the temple area? Because that part was to be given over to the nations to trample for 42 months. So you see, not measuring it was the same as leaving it unprotected and vulnerable to attack. So measuring it is the opposite. It's securing it, it's protecting it. So they are allowed to trample the holy city for 42 months, but not the temple. God allows the world to attack his people and cause various forms of external harm, but he protects the inside. He protects the the, uh, his people from internal harm. They may suffer bodily, economically, socially, politically, but their connection with God and their eternal status as his children cannot be trampled. That seems to be the point. And what about this 42 months? Well, this is actually a time period used repeatedly in the Bible. Here it's referred to as 42 months. It's also referred to as 42 months in Revelation 13.5. But elsewhere, like the next verse and the next chapter, 12.6, it's called 1260 days. It's the same as 42 months. But there it has a different label. It's also called three and a half years at times, and at other times it's called by a more cryptic phrase, time, times, and half a time. Which, if you look at Revelation 12, 14, and 12, 6, clearly means time, times, half a time, a year, two years, half a year, three and a half years. The numerical significance of this amount 
is that it's half of seven years, a week of years. See Daniel 9.27, which actually makes that clear. So what does this three and a half year time period refer to? Well, if you look at all the places where this time period is used, the thing that they all have in common is that they are times of, they are periods of time when God's people are allowed to suffer, but at the same time they're protected and cared for and provided for by the Lord. And that's definitely what this period here is in Revelation 11. But it's even more clear in the next chapter, in chapter 12, verse 6, where a woman who represents the church flees from Satan into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is nourished for 1260 days and a few verses later for a time, times, and half a time. The primary event that's in my, the Bible event it's a mighty the, the Bible event that are we're being called to notice here for sure is the three and a half year drought during the days of Elijah. First Kings 17 and 18. Now that may seem strange, um, but you'll see in a minute that, that the passage, you can't deny that that's what uh, that that's in this passage. So this time is used not to give us some indication of how long this era lasts in calendar years, but to reflect the nature of this era. It's a time when God's people will be persecuted, but even while they're being afflicted, God will take care of them and watch over them, as here in chapter 11. And it, of course, is this time period we're in Today, this is the three and a half years. Okay, let's move on to the next section then and follow this up more. The next section, I'm going to use verse 3, 4, and 6. Skip 5 and cover that last. In these verses, it says, I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. Skipping to six, they have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. Ding! And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. So, during the 42 months or the 1260 days there will be two witnesses who will be given authority to prophesy to speak God's word so who are these two witnesses well the general consensus is that these two witnesses are representatives of God's people in their capacity as Christ's witnesses during this age witnesses of his truth of his authority now, this shouldn't be surprising. In Revelation, that, that uh, 
two witnesses would be representative of the whole church. In Revelation 17, one harlot represents all the ungodly. In chapter 12, one woman signifies the community of faith for the same period, the same three and a half year period is here in chapter 11. So it makes sense that the image of two individual prophets could also represent Christ's witnessing people during the same period. And there are a couple hints in this passage which incline us in this direction. First of all, the two witnesses are referred to as two olive trees and two lampstands in verse 4. The lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth remind us of Revelation 1 where we read that Jesus is standing among his lampstands which symbolized his church and he was tending them with the sword that came out from his mouth. There of course there were seven lampstands instead of two lampstands but that's a crucial connection. But it also reminds us of a more obscure passage in Zechariah 4 where the prophet sees a vision of a lampstand with two olive trees to supply the lampstand with oil. And God tells Zechariah in very similar language to Revelation 11 that the two are, he tells them what they are, what they represent. They are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. Now, after Zechariah, who came near the end of the Old Testament, until Christ, the rabbis all talked about what this meant. And their general consensus was that it meant the Israelites at the end of history. The two uh, prophets here represented all of Israel. So, a first century Jew would have interpreted the two witnesses here as referring to the people of God. But the second hint is in verse 9. We're told that after the two witnesses are killed, for three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. Those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets have been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. So, here we have the scene that the two witnesses are killed. And we'll be talking about more this more next week. Two witnesses are killed and the whole world rejoices. And not only do the, does the whole world rejoice, but they see their bodies lying in the street. Now how can the whole world see the bodies of two human beings that are lying in the street? It can't refer to just two individuals. It has to be that people all over the world, their bodies are lying in the street. So it seems that the witnesses are actually many all over the world and not just two individuals. Now some have suggested that these two representative witnesses might be Peter and Paul. 
After all, Peter and Paul are considered the greatest witnesses of the apostolic period. They were dead by this time, but Peter had represented, by the time this book was written, but Peter had represented the church's witness to the Jews, and Paul had represented the church's witness to the Gentiles. And so, as representatives of the church, they might be the two witnesses here. But again, they're not even alive. And even though this might be a part here or something that could add to our understanding of this, there are even clearer implications about another pair of Bible prophets or another pair of Bible heroes who are being depicted in these two witnesses. The description of the powers of the two witnesses in verse 6 draws our attention to Moses and Elijah. It's said of the two witnesses that one, they have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have the power over the waters to turn them into blood and strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. Now who was the one who shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying? Well, that was Elijah. Of course. He shut up the sky for three and a half years. The very time these two are said to be witnessing. And who is the one who exercised power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague? Well, it's Moses, of course, in Exodus 7, 17 to 25, the ten plagues. In both cases, these punishments were applied to unrighteous kings who were persecuting God's people. Interesting. So, why would God want to draw our attention to Moses and Elijah here? Well, Moses represents God's law. He was the giver of the law, after all. And Elijah represents the prophets. So, alluding to the two of them here may imply that these two witnesses are testifying to what the law and the prophets promised about the coming Christ. After all, that seems to be the reason why these same two men were the two witnesses that appeared at Christ's transfiguration. Mark 9. But there's another thing. In Deuteronomy 18.15, God promised that later on he would send another Moses. In Malachi 4.5, God promised that later on he would send another Elijah. Both would come again to restore Israel and judge the ungodly. And who was this new Moses who the people must listen to? Jesus, of course. And who was the new Elijah? John the Baptist, of course. So, Elijah and Moses, the great Old Testament witnesses, bring us, lead us to Jesus and John, the two original New Testament witnesses, both of whom died in a similar fashion to the death described in Revelation 11 of these two witnesses. 
So the two witnesses represent Moses and Elijah, the precursors of John and Jesus. And in that, they seem to act as representatives. Since all of these have died, they act as representatives of all the witnesses who came after them in their wake, in their spirit, in their authority, and with their message. But there's another dimension to the two-ness here. In the Old Testament, every judicial matter was to be proved by the testimony of two or three witnesses. And this principle continues into the New Testament. When Jesus sends his disciples out, two by two, to witness in various communities. In Luke 10. And then in 2 Corinthians 13.1, Paul says his multiple visits to Corinth were validated by this principle that every matter should be proven by two witnesses. Or three. And this is why the two here, I think, is significant. So I think the best way to think of these two witnesses is as representing Christ's witnessing church, the light of the world, standing like two lampstands shining into the dark night of the world, fueled by the oil of the Holy Spirit, bearing testimony before the world of the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. The two witnesses are also clothed in sackcloth. Sackcloth, of course, suggests mourning. Sackcloth suggests that there's a sad part of this witnessing, probably on account of the judgment which comes on those who refuse the message. But sackcloth, interestingly, also was a part of the regular wardrobe of Elijah and John the Baptist. And then the third section, just verse 5, briefly. It says, if anyone would harm these two witnesses, fire pours out from their mouth, the, the mouth of the two witnesses, and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. The point here is this. If anyone tries to harm the two witnesses, fire will pour out from the mouth, from their mouth and consume their enemies and their persecutors will be thus killed. So what is this fire that comes from the mouths of the witnesses that consumes their enemies? Well, remember in chapter 1 when we saw the vision of Jesus, it said that he had a sharp sword coming out of his mouth. In the same way, that wasn't literal. Jesus doesn't now have a physical, literal sword coming out of his mouth, but it refers to his sharp, two-edged uh, word which comes out of his mouth that by which people are slain. So it's not literal. This destructive fire that comes out of their mouth is the same thing. It's symbolic of the message which brings judgment on those who do not heed it. And it's their persecution of the witnesses which cements their doom. Okay, so that's the explanation of the first six verses. Let me make a few points of uh, application before we end. Firstly, the Lord's people are his witnesses. 
This isn't a minor part of our role as the people of Christ. We bear his message. This isn't an office that only some are called to. This isn't a gift only a few are given. As the whole body of Christ, we are told to bring the message to every people, proclaiming everything Christ has said in his word. But because this provokes so much animosity, there is tremendous pressure to do two things. To soften the message, to amputate parts of Christ's truth which the world finds unappealing, and second of all, to hide the message and to be a witness under a bushel, as Jesus said, to hide the light. These are temptations which must be resisted. Sometimes the reason we're not persecuted is because we're trying so hard not to be. Second of all, Christ, as he calls us to be his witnesses, also promises to be his witnesses' protectors. We saw in chapter 1 that Jesus tended to the lampstands in the temple, that he is tending to his churches, his people, watching over them, maintaining them, fixing them, helping them. And we saw in Revelation 7 that they are given a protective seal shielding them from spiritual harm. And now here in chapter 11 we see that the temple grounds representing his house is being well looked after and well cared for and well protected. This doesn't mean God does not allow attackers to attack and haters to hate. But it does mean that there's a boundary line to the malicious persecution of God's city. He will permit outward damage to be done, but that's where it stops. That's where he draws the line. That's where he says, you can come no further. Christ's church is protected so that they might bear a faithful witness to their Lord. And as Christ's people... This passage helps us to see that we have unimaginable power. Power to shut the sky that no rain may fall. Power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague. And you might say, well, I can't do that. I'm not Moses or Elijah. But let me ask you, was it really Moses and Elijah that had that power? No, not at all. It was God. And the same God who was with Moses and Elijah is with us to protect us as his spokesmen. All the powers of God are marshaled for the protection of his people. And so we need to overcome our fear. You know, when a young person usually is learning to ride a bike or learning to swim or learning to drive a car, uh, they are, one of their biggest things that they have to confront is fear. But the only way that they can confront their fear is by learning to trust their teacher. 
it's not going to be easy. You're going to have some follow-ups, but you're not going to die. Your teacher is not going to let anything like that happen. It's not because the situation is not latent, latent with danger. It is. You can drown in water. You can die in a car crash. You can do serious damage to yourself in a bike accident. Ask Bob Sowers. So it's understandable that people are afraid when they're learning these things. But in order to make it through successfully, you have to have more than fear. You have to trust your teacher. You have to know that your teacher is strong enough and attentive enough and cares enough to not let you hurt yourself. When my children were overtaken by fear while I was trying to teach them to ride a bike, sometimes I'm, here I am running alongside them. I've got one hand either on the back of their seat or hovering near the back of their seat and another one hovering right next to the steering wheel and they're riding and yet they're panicking in fear and sometimes I would just lift the whole bike up with them on it and say, you see, I've got you. I'm not going to let you go. I'm not just going to let you crash. So I do the same thing when they're trying to swim, you know, and I've got my hands underneath them, I'd lift them up and say, I've got you, I'm not going to let you drown. The fact is that you are not alone. There are real dangers. There are people who are threatened by you because you believe in Christ. There are people who hate you even though they've never even met you. But your daddy is right there with you, constantly attentive, completely loving and committed to your welfare, perfectly wise. And you're only going to be able to face the fearful parts of life if you know that. He's got you. Do you think he would have died on the cross for you if he didn't care enough about you to watch over you and protect you? Do you think it's even possible for him to be neglectful? He loves you more than any parent loves his child. Can a woman forget her nursing child? that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even she may forget. Yet I will not forget you, says the Lord. Isaiah 49, 15. You can expect persecution. You can expect trouble. You can expect heartbreak. But you can also expect that Jesus is going to be right there by your side through it all. As Jesus said, you will be hated for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. Luke 21, 17 and 18. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the assuring words that you give us in your word. And Lord, 
as you have called us to be your witnesses, we pray that we would not be held back by fear, for we know that you have not given us a spirit of fear, but a spirit of power and love and a sound mind. And we pray, dear Lord, that you would help us to be faithful witnesses, to stand up for Jesus, to proclaim his truth, to represent him well. Oh Lord, the world is so desperately in need of light in its vast darkness. May we shine with the light of Christ. And now, dear Lord, we thank you so much for the opportunity to come to Jesus through the sacrament of communion. And we pray that you would meet us here and fill us that your light might come to us like a battery being charged so that when we go forth from here, dear Lord, we might go forth and shine like Jesus. We pray in his great name. Amen.